Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome back to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm joined again by Rosa Brooks in Washington. Rosa is with Georgetown University Law School, joined by Julie Smith, also in Washington, with Center of New American Security and host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast. Urge you all to listen to it. And Corey Shockey beneath a palm tree in sunny Palo Alto, California, also the home of Stanford University and garage apartments that go for $4 million each. Um, we are going to shift the, we're going to shift the focus of our conversation a, a little bit. A garage apartment to, in Palo Alto is more expensive than Rosa's. Way um, more than my bunker. Way more than her bunker. And so Not if you have to choose folks ones. between. The prefab ones are more reasonable. <laughs> the prefab <laughs> bunkers. Yeah. Okay. We're going to oh, we'll launch a new podcast called Doomsday Preppers and you guys can host it and we can really. I, I do think it's important, David, to mention that. Totally <laughs> redundant of our current podcast. Yeah. Doomsday Preppers. Radio yeah. is the Doomsday Prep. I think it's important, though, to mention that Julie's podcast, Brussels Sprouts, is, is not uh, a podcast about recipes for the bunker. It's, it's, it's about uh, <laughs> Europe and transatlantic yes. relationships. Even though they're very tasty yeah, no, with no. bacon, <laughs> yeah, Brown, it's not about Brussels bacon and Parmesan. An word. So Julie is clearly wearing the rhinestone tiara of optimism. That's <laughs> um, true. And I, and I want to underscore her point that, about that. That, that everything is more tasty with bacon. But Julie, you know, as you look at Europe, um, you know, yes. here's what here's here's what we're seeing in Europe, um, and I'm not talking about European politics. We can get back to that in a little bit. I'm talking about another phenomenon, which is is one that's in the headlines so often that we're inured to it, which is the ability of people full of hate to go and kill a few other people, and dominate the news cycle and trigger reactions full of hate from other people. There was an attack in London a couple weeks later, um, just a couple of days ago. Uh, somebody drove a van into a group of people leaving a mosque. Uh, we've had attacks in the United States. Uh, we've, uh, there was a, 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 an alleged attack of some sort in, in, in France just this week. The, something, something is coming undone in our societies, where average citizens on average streets are seemingly increasingly seen as the soft targets and the opportunities of the unhinged and the extreme to express their anger. And, and it's, it's, it seems to me we're on a slippery slope from 9-11 through now, where increasingly these small acts drive politics 
drive the actions of leaders, drive the views of people. Um, And it's very dangerous because we may take all the land back from ISIS we want, and a guy with a pressure cooker and a bunch of ball bearings or a knife can go and transform the dialogue and produce new waves of hatred. Now, you may think I'm just, you know, sort of um, re-describing, you know, the nature of terror. But it seems to me that it's, 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 it's morphing a little bit, that something different is happening here. Well, I think that's right. Um, I mean, we, we've had different forms of political violence over many, many, many years on both sides of the Atlantic. But the, the, the tactics have evolved and the responses, as you noted, um, are, pr- are pretty troubling. And certainly we're seeing the political, political consequences of all of this. Um, I mean, we've known for some time that publics on both sides of the Atlantic have been um, deeply concerned about the rise of ISIL and um, folks as far away as sitting out in the middle of Kansas often list terrorism and ISIS as some of their top concerns. And now we're seeing cases where it doesn't have to be a whole army of people wearing suicide vests, um, coming foreign fighters, returning from Syria to instigate such attacks. Um, it can be someone inspired by it, loosely directed um, by some of these groups, um, completely disconnected and just wanting to express their hatred anger, outrage, rage, however you want to describe it. And they don't need much. They need, uh, they don't have to learn how to make a bomb. They don't have to tutor themselves on um, one tactic or the other. They can rent a truck. They can rent a van. They can grab a couple of knives. Um, And now, tragically, as we've seen most recently, you know, they can basically bring a massive city like London to a grinding halt and fuel the flames of anti-immigrant, anti-establishment sentiment and help um, populist candidates, um, people uh, come up with very uh, disturbing domestic policies to try and grapple with this. But the reality is there, there aren't that many tools. Um, I think some candidates like to say, oh, I'll be tough and I'll have a tough response and we'll crack down. And, you know, Theresa May said, no more mucking around. We're going to get tough and not tolerate this anymore. But it, it kind of just keeps on coming. Um, I don't think this is the end. I think we're going to see more incidents like this. Um, and I think it will have a lasting impact on the political scene across Europe and even in our own country and really disturbs me in terms of what it says about resilience, our lack of it, um, political dialogue about tolerance. Um, yeah, it's a pretty – I can get pretty depressed pretty quickly talking well, about this. Sorry. Well, I want to shed a little ray of light on <laughs> Okay, hit me, hit <laughs> by, me. By disagreeing yeah, with, with okay. part of your premise, yeah. David um, – uh, I the part I don't disagree with is that these we we we've seen an increase in sort of mass casualty attacks uh, and and uh, that publics and political leaders are 
reacting and overreacting to these in, in some dangerous ways. But I, but I think we need to, to sort of keep this in historical perspective, and I'm not able to go back as far as Waterloo, but, but take a look at historical homicide rates in, in the United States, for instance. Um, homicide rates in the United States for the past 20 years or so have been substantially lower than they were during the period from about 1960 to, to the late 1990s. Uh, the previous dip uh, was the period uh, during and, and the decade following World War II. Prior to that, in the 19-teens, 20s, and 30s, homicide rates were extremely high, almost as high as they became again in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, and, and a lot of those homicides were uh, gang-related. A lot of them were ethnic violence. Uh, there were race riots in many major American cities. Uh, there were lynchings. There were attacks on Chinese immigrants in the Pacific, et cetera, et cetera. That there's nothing new in this country, and I, I, I have less information on uh, European statistics, uh, but but there is there is sadly there is absolutely nothing new in the United States about sky high levels of homicide and other violent crime, and there is absolutely nothing new about a fair number of those assaults and homicides being motivated by some of the same factors that we decry today, which is to say ethnic, uh, racial, religious, and nationalistic hatred and bias. Um, so so th- why why you say is that happy news? Jesus. Um, <laughs> I've got well, tears running down my face. Um, right tears now. of relief and joy. Um, no, but I, I mean, I think the point, the point, the point here, <laughs> the, the point here is, is let's not, let's not act as though this is unprecedented. Um, it's not unprecedented. The particular ways in which it's it is playing out and may play out are unique to our moment. But but this fantasy that sort of once upon a time all Americans loved each other and lived in peace and harmony, that's complete crap. Okay. Well, Corey, you so, sounded like you wanted to say something. <laughs> there. Yeah. So the first thing I wanted to say is Rosa does not get a rhinestone tiara of optimism if that is her optimistic case. <laughs> I'm not handing it over. Said, all I mean is that yeah, no, the Rosa, world is Rosa, not coming to an end. It's always been crappy. R- Rosa gets the yes, tiara of but, thorns. It's the that. tiara made entirely of thorns. Yeah. Go so on. I, uh, she's exactly right that that America has always been a violent society riven by racism and um, by a desire of those who already have it good to be exclusionary towards those, uh, to new arrivals, to new ideas. That's that's exactly true. Uh, But I do think uh, there are three interrelated phenomena going on right now that are making this seem like an exceptionally fraught time. The first is globalization. Right. This isn't the first great wave of globalization. The Portuguese uh, sailors of the 15th century brought globalization every bit as revolutionary as what we are experiencing now. But what is different now, I think, is the inability of societies to throw up borders to prevent being affected by it. Right. So repressive as Saudi Arabia is, um, uh, young Saudi Arabians want internet connections. 
They want to see what the rest of the world is like, right? So, so countries' ability to prevent the intrusion of the kinds of changes that are going on in the world is lower now than it has been before. Uh, so, so people feel the pace of change more. The second thing that I think is going on is um, the challenges of governance because states can't prevent stuff. Um, so many of the challenges we are looking at now um, and the problems that we are looking at, like terrorism, are not a function of religion. They're a function of incapacity of people to create the kind of change they want to see. And political systems and cultural systems and religious systems that are immutable to people's desire for change are the societies and the cultures and the religions and the territories that these problems are emanating from. And we need to include our own in it, right? The, the lone wolf challenge in the United States is, is much more salient than the, you know, terrorists coming in from someplace else. You are seven times as likely to be killed for being Muslim in the United States as you are likely to be killed by a Muslim in the United States. This is about adapting to That's change. Amazing statistic. And, and our... And our failure as a society to live up to our belief in governance and its capacity for change. And the third thing that I think is going on amidst this is an, in, an inflated expectation that, you know, that we're always safe wherever we are. That, you know, as Rosa pointed out, way less violence in our society than even 20 years ago. But that's not our perception of it. Our perception of it is that violence in our society should equal zero. And every time it doesn't equal zero, politicians fall all over each other to suggest how they're going to be tougher instead of building resilience, as Julie pointed out, that, you know, how do we recover from these things? Because it's the nature of our society that we're going to have them. We ought to, we, we ought to figure out how do we make ourselves stronger. Well, you know, I, the question is, can we recover from these things and do we recover from these things? And, you know, as I watch the news over the course of the past couple of months, the past couple of years, I can't tell you how often I, I'm, I'm, I'm given to think um, that Osama bin Laden had achieved one of the great successes of, of any actor on the world stage because he, with one act, um, now, 16 years ago, disrupted the world, the way the world works, the priorities set by the world in ways that he could only he couldn't even begin to imagine. And the knock on consequences have just continued and continued. And it was one thing in the nine, you know, in 2002 and three and four, when we said we can't have another 9-11. We can't have another one of these big kind of incidents. And we have to go and look for cells and these kind of quasi-military operations to the point where we are today where anybody with a kitchen knife and the will to, 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 to risk death can go out and command the headlines and advance this cause, and there is absolutely no way to defend against that. There, there is no way, and, and that we can seem to continue down this slippery slope. And then, of course, the consequence of it is 
not so much the number of casualties, but the political backlash, the opportunism that Julie was talking about earlier, whether it's nationalists in Europe or um, or or Putinists in Russia or or Trump and his crew here, where they just take these incidents and they say, see, everybody who isn't like us is dangerous uh, and we should be able to use all tactics of all sorts to go and weed out anybody who is even remotely a risk. And it sort of spreads the sense of who do we watch out for? Where does the problem lie? And that seems, you know, that seems like something that is different from the past, Rosa. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure I think it is, David. I mean, I, I, I mean, this is the, you know, every moment in history is different from every other moment in, in one way or another. But, but I, don't, I don't know that that phenomenon of uh, uh, politicians making hay out of uh, racially or ethnically motivated violence uh, and using it to foment further intolerance, I don't think there's anything new about that phenomenon. Um, I do think that, you know, that as you said, uh, well, Corey, you know, I, I do think that th- there are a couple of things that are new-ish. Um, one, as Corey said, uh, the sort of more globalized nature of the environment now, and the other is the media environment, which which can inflame sentiments across a larger territory much faster than ever before in human history. Um, that's new. It's a great um, point. Um, and, you know, so 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 these sort of what what might once have been micro crises affecting a particular geographic location and community uh, now have the ability to kind of spiral into not only the, the national discourse, but the, the global discourse with with lightning speed. Um, and I, I don't know how that changes things. Um, um, I did want to point out one thing which is that when we we often spend time thinking about well, what are the root causes of terrorism in, in other countries, you know, what makes a society more susceptible to having terrorist organizations and movements take foot and violent extremist movements take foot? Um, uh, take foot, is that, a, is that an actual phrase or did I just... Take root. Take root, thank you, not take foot. <laughs> I knew there was something wrong with that. It didn't sound right, <laughs> but I'm tired. Um, yeah, you had the foot. double O. It uh, was yeah, close yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, and, and one of the things that, that studies do point to is that people turn to violence when they perceive that ordinary political processes... Uh, that there is no possibility of affecting change in a meaningful way through ordinary political processes. Exactly. And I think we're seeing that in Western societies as well. You know, that, that, that I think if we, 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 are, we are seeing whether, whether you want to look at last week's uh, shooting uh, here in the D.C. area of Republican congressmen uh, doing baseball practice, a shooting by a Bernie Sanders supporter, or whether you want to look at people driving a van into a bunch of Muslims leaving a mosque or whether you want to look at a, a an extremist Islamic terrorist doing the same to a bunch of random people in London or elsewhere. You know, that, that in some sense that they, when you look at the individual, the backgrounds of the individuals, you know, sometimes there are just straight out mental health issues, obviously. But, but the other common thread that you see other than mental health issues is frustration and anger, a sense that my legitimate grievances, whatever they may be, are I have no way to get the system, whatever the system is, 
to listen to me, to hear me, to do anything. And that kind of toxic frustration, which then boils over into violence, is not, I think, fundamentally different in nature from the toxic frustration that fueled the rise of al-Qaeda or that fueled the rise of ISIS. It's the same same phenomenon. We should take heed. I Yeah. I mean, I think there was a piece in the New York Times a couple of days ago with the title Inferno of Public Trust. And I, th- I think that's right. I think that's what you're getting at here, that people feel that in some cases – some people feel they can't rely on their own national government or that institutions are not going to serve their interests or meet their needs. Uh, The media is not on their side um, across the board. And therefore, this sentiment erupts, you know, I'll have to take matters into my own hands. Um, And I think that's very much part of it. Uh, Just back to your media point, um, which was a really good one about how you can take uh, a somewhat, uh, I don't want to belittle it, but say an isolated incident in a small corner of country X and how it suddenly erupts onto the global stage thanks to social media. I mean, not only do you have that problem, but now we have a country like Russia, and Russia's not the only country, that wants to take those crises and turn them on its head to either fuel it with disinformation that immediately makes people draw the wrong conclusions about the cause of the incident or what happened or who was hurt or the rationale behind it, um, or to claim crises happened in the first place that, in fact, never happened. I mean, we had the incident um, in Germany where Russia was putting forward disinformation about refugees attacking a young girl uh, that went viral. We had the Bowling Um, Green Massacre. Well, we had the Bowling Green Massacre, exactly. So when you take that media piece and then you insert the added challenge of um, our adversaries injecting disinformation into that crisis moment, you get, it's, you know, a recipe for disaster. Well, I'm let me handing ask over my optimism question. crown to <laughs> passing it to anyone wandering down the hall well, who wants it. I don't Corey, want it anymore. Corey, Corey is the retired holder of the TR of optimism. Let me give you a tough question, Corey. Um, are you sitting down? I am. Corey. Yeah, yeah okay. I so, am. Corey's at the think, bottom of her do you well. Think the, yeah. Do you think the Trump administration is making this better or worse? Oh, wow. That actually is a hard question. Um, no, I it's not, Corey. Think, it's an easy question. No, it's not. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I do think they're making it worse because the president in particular um, uh, has a obdurately simplistic view of these problems that in no way obdurately. I actions. love that. I love academics. I love academics. <laughs> obdurately simplistic. Don't you He's make fun idiot, of academics? <laughs> the president of the United States is a moron who has no experience in this area. But that's yeah. Oh yeah. Obdurately simplistic. I get it. Uh, and uh, so, for example, by accepting the Saudi and Emirati narrative that Qatar, which admittedly is playing both sides of the street on Iran and on 
militant Islam and other issues, uh, is somehow the solely guilty party in that regard, um, right? That, that obfuscates the fact that there are real challenges of governance in Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Bahrain and Kuwait and other societies in the Gulf. And Qatar is not the only one that's playing footsies with the Iranians or with other malevolent actors. They, um, I think maybe to connect back to our broader conversation about is this a new phenomenon and how is the international order changing? It's that um, I think people are very impatient with the complexity of the problems we're looking at and, and want simple answers when simple answers aren't available. And so the collapse of confidence in the establishment and in experts, because we keep saying, wait, wait, it's complicated. And, and the charlatans like the president who say, well, we'll just torture their families and that'll solve the terrorism problem. Uh, and then the frustration of the public that, wow, turns out simple solutions create, A, don't solve the problem, and B, create a whole host of additional problems that we then have to deal with. Um, uh, I am, here's my, here's me donning the rhinestone tiara of optimism. I believe that after the Trump presidency, in which people were, you know, many Trump voters were well-meaning people who thought, Washington's not solving our problem. Let's put a businessman in there. Maybe he can bring a different perspective. And, of course, he isn't. Well, he is bringing a different perspective. He isn't solving problems. My hope is that the next iteration of this is a public saying, okay, we had the right diagnosis, but the wrong prescription. So how about choosing a solid governor who's actually dealt with these problems in, in a state of the union and have them bring a different perspective to Washington. One that acknowledges you need to be a good politician who works with others and builds consensus. And you mean like George get, W. Bush know. and Bill Clinton? Kasich? Okay. Okay. Go on. Go. I'm not going to take Rosa's bait. Well, but but again, I mean, in my in my role as uh, things aren't so bad, which is to say that they're only about as bad as they've always been. Um, I don't know that the sort of collective uh, global impatience with uh, waiting for governments to sort things out is is anything new either, right? I mean, think of the period uh, before World War One and and what you know we all remember. Uh, what supposedly sparks World War I is Gavrilo Princip's assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, a classic case of, I don't feel like waiting for the political process to work things out. I'm going to take matters into my own hands with a bunch of my pals. Uh, didn't work out so well. You know, the, 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 there again, I, I, I think basically, um, you know, humans are a rather unevolved species. That this is, this is, this is nothing new. Uh, uh, its consequences as as we have moved forward, as our as our technological prowess uh, has uh, steadily overtaken our our brain capacity, we find ourselves um, with each passing generation in a more and more existentially precarious position as a species. Uh, uh, World War One 
wiped out several tens of millions of people in Europe, World War II uh, upped the ante a little bit more. We now, of course, have the capacity to uh, wipe out the entire planet if we if we should choose to do so. Um, so I guess I'm not taking up the tier of optimism, but I would say the, like the new you thing the not. new thing is technology. The new thing is 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 True. our increasing True. destructive capacity and the speed with which we can use our various technologies, whether they be destructive in nature or our communications technologies. Well, um, that's, that's the new thing. But but humans being impatient, humans behaving badly, that's not that's not new. Okay, but but you know that's like saying there are some elements of this that aren't new, but there are some elements that make it very different. And True. I and I and I think there are elements that make this very different. One of the elements that makes this different are communications technologies that enable fringe groups to connect and enable incidents to go from uh, an isolated incident far away to a firestorm of political controversy within seconds or minutes or a few hours on the internet. Uh, new tools for stimulating emotional reactions as opposed to substantive reactions. Uh, and uh, that's new. But another thing that's new is having the most vacuous, least experienced president of the most powerful country in the world who is prone towards succumbing to the worst impulses of the new media and seeking to capitalize on them for his own political gain. That's just different from what we've had in the past, which is not to say all our presidents have been perfect, but the combination of a Trump in the new media age combined with those old human defects that you're talking about, that Rosa, um, does put us, I think, in a somewhat different position. Julie, does it? Yeah, it does. But, you know, Trump could disappear tomorrow and we'd still be faced with just about everything that we're talking about here today. I mean, sadly, he's probably the least uh, capable person to deal with everything we've just outlined, um, although he thinks, oddly enough, he's the best person to take on all of the challenges that Corey outlined in terms of, you know, what we face that's new and different. Um but again, I mean, anybody could be sitting in there and we faced this not so long ago when we were sitting over there inside government. Um, you know, the news breaks fast. You have this inclination. You feel like you have to respond within seconds, which creates really lousy responses in some cases and um, detracts from your broader strategic objectives or what you just wanted to get done in any given day. And the technology piece is real, and the technology piece is not going away. Uh, I think it's going to get worse and harder for national governments, for institutions, um, for traditional structures to deal with this. And we haven't even talked about AI and all sorts of other stuff that's just sitting out there on the horizon. So I'm not so sure that the American public post-Trump will say, all right, um, we didn't get it right with this outsider. Let's uh, go for a governor. Maybe they still conclude that Trump wasn't the right fit, but the sentiment was a right one. And that's an outsider, a business leader has to come in and kind of take control and take charge. I don't know. Who knows? Corey. Based on everything you've just heard and based on observing the world as you observe it, 
Do you anticipate that there will be any significant change in the intensity or the conduct of terrorism and the response to terrorism in the next decade? Yeah, I think I do, actually, um, because I, I agree with Rose's powerful insight about technology and, in particular, technology as affects the media. But I think we are in this phase of, you know, we're in the moment where everything's new. It's the shock of the new. But we are actually going to evolve patterns and laws and norms that adapt to it, right? Like uh, the Clinton campaign may have been the first one that got shocked to realize it, it all of its worst private sentiments are going to be displayed before the public, that every future one is going to have to bank on the fact that that's going to happen. So they're going to adapt different patterns of behavior um, in order to minimize the risk that that poses. If you look at the very creative way that the Macron um, campaign anticipated Russian efforts to compromise their systems both the electoral system and their internal campaign communications and to proactive countermeasures. I, I, I am more confident than I believe Julia Rosa are that even though this is the new nature of the landscape, we're also learning how to map and navigate this landscape and we're going to build dams. We're going to uh, put in, you know, tunnels under mountains. We're going to find adaptations that help us manage these emergent problems. What about you guys? Rose, are you optimistic that in the next 10 years somehow we're... Ah, golly. I I mean, on the one hand, sure, in in all kinds of... So so, so I think think terrorist attacks and disruptive hacking attacks will will probably increase, not decrease. Um, I think that there is a contagion effect of these, uh, that just as there's a sort of you know, and and this is part of the result of the global twenty four seven media environment that that uh, you you know it's just like you Columbine is awful. You report ad nauseum endlessly on Columbine, and it puts the idea into the head of you know a dozen other messed up high school kids that maybe I should go out and shoot people at my school, and they do that. And and th- this is pretty well documented. Same with suicides. Uh, it's, it's one of the reasons that mental health professionals beg media outlets not to report too much on suicides uh, because uh, the contagion effect is pretty well documented. Uh, and I think that, you know, with the best intentions of the in the world, the, you know, many of the uh, most reputable media outlets in the United States and in Europe are contributing to what will almost certainly be the contagion effect of these kinds of uh, terrorist mass attacks. Um, uh, if you can't use, you know, use guns if you've got guns. If you can't use guns, use explosives. If you don't have explosives, just drive your car into a whole bunch of people standing around. You know, if, if for some reason we come up with some fix for that, people will find something else. And the more, the more we collectively highlight these things and wring our hands, the more it puts the idea into the heads of, of every disgruntled person of whatever ideological bent who's out there as, hey, this is a good way to get attention. Um, and so I think that this is going to increase before it decreases. I think, I I think that Corey is right that you know there's a there's a sense and you know what doesn't kill us makes us strong and and 
what doesn't kill us, we will adapt to eventually, um, whether it's uh, violent terror attacks or whether it's uh, surveillance or hacking um, or doxing or what have you. Um, we will adapt um, on a on a sort of more cosmic level. You know, I, I think there will be sort of small scale adaptations in tactics uh, by political campaigns, et cetera. Um, but on a more cosmic level, I'm not super confident that human adaptation will uh, uh, precede catastrophe as opposed to stem from catastrophe. Um, I, I don't think our, our, you know, you've all heard me uh, rant and rave before about about this that. Um, you know, on a global level, uh, international society has evolved new governance structures periodically. You could say, you know, score one for the human ability to adapt and innovate uh, in response to changing conditions. Or you could say, yeah, but, you know, it takes things like the 30 years war and World Wars one and two for us to do that, in which case you say, uh, no, that's not exactly a, a victory for the human ability to adapt and innovate. We, we only do it after catastrophic failure. So, so it doesn't necessarily make me feel particularly uh, optimistic. But does anything? No. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, right. her horse, her yeah. horse from a episode. <laughs> my dog was happy to be back at the dog park after they got the my. I just so you all know, it was my very dog park that was uh, being shot up last week mm. by by uh, the crazed Bernie Sanders supporter who was determined to get rid of the Republicans in Congress. And my dog was very unhappy about it because it shut the dog park down for a week. But now it reopened and we took her yesterday and she was very happy. And that made me feel good. Resilience. Resilience. Back to resilience. In action. In action. This is, yeah. <laughs> does, does your dog have no conscience? Does your dog have no sense of political my perspective? Dog, my dog said that not does even Republicans do- should be shot at near a dog park or anywhere else. That was my dog's statement on the matter. Did, well, thank you for that. Um, does does your dog have a Twitter account by any chance? She's she's working on that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think deep state deep state radio nerds would love to follow Rosa's dog for sure. For <laughs> sure, horse. she's very for, wise. And her, yeah. and, or just Rosa's dog well, and the her horse, horse belongs to Corey. Yeah, the yeah. horse belongs to Corey. Okay, well, that's the horse she wrote in we'll on it. Yeah. Not, yeah. Oh, nice. Now, very nice. All right, oh Julie. Last chance. I know it's it's really hard to Ter- keep up with us. <laughs> yeah, nice. really. Last chance, Last Julie. Last chance for optimism. Te- well, oh no! Uh, and no the horse has arrived. It's it's uh, the horse. Can we cue the music? Right. And yeah, we are very close uh, to cueing the music. But but the question is, as you look out at the next ten years, are you optimistic that we're going to see a turn for the better in the war on terror and its results, or? Uh, the worse. Uh, I think ten years is too short of a time frame. Um, I think um, we're going to see a lot more. So pessimistic then. <laughs> what pessimistic? Yeah. If you said twenty five thirty, you said fifty. Uh, but no, I I think the um, back to the public trust question. I mean, I think that's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. I think we're just. Um, the kind of opening act of entering the post-manufacturing economy and people are going to have uh, everyone, uh, we're irrespective of what country you live in, a really tough time um, coping with that reality. Human nature, human history has shown a remarkable ability to adapt. So I, I take that point. We've talked about that a lot 
today. Uh, but, um, yeah, in terms of grievances, dangers, uh, problems uh, out on the horizon in the 10-year span, I think we're in for a pretty rough ride. Well, there you have it, folks. Terror's been around a long time, but we're 16 years into this particular war on terror, and it's going to go on for another 50. So, you know, we're 25% of the way into it, you know, if 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 we're lucky. Um, that's the typically kind of dark assessment that you'd expect from Deep State Radio and the nerds here. But remember this, we're always right, um, even when we disagree with each other. Uh, um, <laughs> maybe, maybe especially when we disagree with each other. I do want to say one thing, and that is that next week we'll announce a couple of the winners of the first mugs produced by Deep State Radio. There have been some fantastic submissions uh, some people don't get that things have changed here, that this is not an FP broadcast, uh, that we're not looking for sob stories like we once upon a time did. They were looking for people who will do things for Deep State Radio to get the word out. We've had some spectacular efforts. Nobody's tattooed Deep State Radio on their forehead yet, but it's very, very spectacular please efforts. Don't. If you go to. And please, if you go, our, <laughs> please Deep no, no. State Radio nerds, do not tattoo it. Okay, because that's Corey's point of view. I'll give you a mug instantly if you tattoo it on your forehead. But, um, <laughs> Only if it's tattooed on your forehead where everyone else can see yeah, it. Yeah, right, and, and you're it over 21. It does us no good if it's hidden by clothes. Right, right. Kids, if you're under 21, don't do this. But if you're over 21 and you want to deface yourself on our behalf, go for it. But there will be mugs, and we'll award those next week, and then shortly after that there will be some sweatshirts, and who knows, maybe some rhinestone tiaras of optimism, and we'll set up a little way that Yay! everybody who wants these things. Yeah. I'll throw uh, in some Brussels sprouts with bacon. Oh, and mm. there's one other, actually, that was Rosa's idea, and it's coming soon, and that's the ma the Deep State Radio Magic 8-Ball, which, if you hold it up, Ooh. comes up with 20 different, 20 different answers that you might have heard on Deep State Radio. It's really cool. <laughs> um, and that's Fantastic. being made by... Ivanka Trump's slave laborer somewhere in Indonesia right now. Um, I joke, of course. I'm sure it's being I'm sure it's being made in a high tech factory where there's only robots and no human beings. But all these things will be available to you. Listen in, communicate with us on Twitter by hashtag Deep State Radio. Um, uh, follow our fan site, Deep State Radio Nerds, which is a great site um, uh, for the real extreme followers. And go tell your friends. We've grown enormously in our first couple of weeks. We are incredibly happy. We love you listeners. You are the best listeners in the world. There is no question about that. But go get some other good ones because we want to get to the size where when we whisper our deep state radio whispers, we change the world in the way that we always intended we would. Right, Rosa? Yes. Right. Right, Corey? Absolutely. And Julie, you agree, of course. Of course. There you go. <laughs> we are all, we are all in agreement. You guys are really slow on the uptake. Thank you, Corey. <laughs> Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, listeners. We'll be back next week with more Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. 
Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.